So we're in a series on the implications of the Great Tribulation, and this led us to dealing with the philosophical problem that the existence of evil creates. Last week we began with a section on Revelation 16 during the second half of the Tribulation when the bold judgments occur. And it's really clear that the loathsome sores and the blood-filled oceans and rivers and the dying wildlife and all of those and the scorching fire that they come directly from God. And this leads to some troublesome questions for believers. One of the clear implications of the Great Tribulation is the question of whether God is the cause of evil. And over the years, I've been asked a lot of questions about this, and some examples are there in your notes tonight. Here they are. Does God have the capacity to choose evil? If God is completely sovereign, then was it his will for humanity to fall into sin? If God is completely sovereign, in essence, is he actually the source of evil? So last week we started working on the question, is God the cause of evil? I'm sure that some of you were stunned to find out that within classical Christian theology, there are actually two answers to these questions. No and yes. So we began to look at the two schools of thought. And let's look at these. These are your, your first blanks. Uh, and I've got them on the board for, for emphasis here because God's sovereignty is a real key in the concept of Reformed theology. And here's your, here's your blanks. And uh, uh, the uh, Reformed theology believes that God willed, wills, and causes sin and evil. God wills and causes sin and evil because he causes everything. A bit more on that in a minute. And then in Arminian theology, they believe that God allowed for the possibility of evil, but granting, by granting humans the power to make genuine moral choices. Here's your blanks. And giving them the ability, the ability to rebel against his will. So again, Reformed theology believes God willed and caused or wills and causes. It's also true in the present tense. Uh, sin and evil and Arminian theology believes God allowed for the possibility of evil by granting humans the power to make genuine moral choices and giving them the ability to rebel against his will. So we went through the five points of Reformed theology, the tulip, total, the total depravity, the U, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance in the saints, and the Arminian perspective and response to each of these. Go back to Thursology 64 uh, if you haven't listened to that yet because it's the entire background for what we're talking about tonight. And then we looked at the most fundamental difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. And here it is, the theology of understanding God's sovereignty. Ready? In Reformed theology, here's your blanks, God's sovereignty allows for no human freedom or choice. That's an absolute foundation. God's sovereignty allows for no human freedom or choice because every detail of every thought and every action is predetermined and controlled by God. 
And you'll see here, here's the most fundamental difference between the two classical Protestant the theological traditions. And here's Arminian theology. In God's absolute sovereignty, he has chosen to be interactive with humans as he allows meaningful choices. Right? So let me say that again. In God's absolute sovereignty, he has chosen to be interactive with humans as he allows meaningful choices while never surrendering, never surrendering the clear biblical doctrine that his purposes will be established. So in both cases, God's absolute sovereignty is affirmed, but in the Arminian view, God's sovereignty is expressed by the fact that he is so powerful and so sovereign that his purposes will always ultimately be established, even when people choose to reject his will. So it's an amazing, the Arminian view is an amazing view of sovereignty. God allows for human freedom in some areas of moral choice, not in all areas, and not certainly in all areas of of the physical realm uh, um, uh, either, of course, you, you can't jump 50 feet in the air. It's just not possible. So there are freedoms that allow, God constrains and so forth. But the amazing thing is no one has to follow God's will for God's will to be accomplished. It's just a remarkable view. Uh, and I disclose to you because you should know that my uh, perspective is the Arminian understanding of the sovereignty of God. So we spent some time unpacking the origin of evil and the implications of the Reformed understanding of God's sovereignty. And here's what we looked at. Uh, implication number one, uh, I've got all your blanks in here for you, so, but you can follow along. Since God is the cause of everything, since everything God's wills comes to pass, then God isn't just the author of good. He must also be the author of evil. So in response, we went through the text, uh, uh, one text of only of, of hundreds of passages in the scripture that establish, here's your blanks, a clear biblical doctrine. God isn't the cause of sin. Rather, he implores people to follow his ways and warns them that they will destroy themselves if they choose to disobey. The Arminian response um, to the freedom uh, that God has given in, in, the, in the moral arena. And then implication number two, God isn't just the cause of the concept of evil, he's the cause of personal evil. Look at this quote that I left in there from last week uh, by Edwin Palmer, a, a renowned uh, uh, um, Calvinist uh, and Reformed theologian. God decides all that is to happen in the entire universe. God is in back of everything. He causes all things to happen that do happen, he has foreordained everything. You could also insert the synonym predestined. He has foreordained everything after the counsel of his will. And look at this short list. The moving of a finger. Here's what God has predestined. The moving of a finger, the beating of a heart, the laughter of a girl, the mistake of a typist, even every sin. But here's the problem with this view. Repeatedly, the word announces that it's God's desire that people would turn from sin. Scripture explicitly states that God has no interest in punishing people. He desires that they would turn from sin and become a new creation. So how could God possibly keep a straight face when he says that he doesn't desire the death of the wicked, when in fact, that's the very thing that he has decreed will take place no matter what anyone does? In other words... According to Reformed theology, God punishes people for the very actions that he forces them to do by his 
predestined sovereignty. Implication number three, the enormity of worldwide suffering and the perpetration of massive atrocities are all according to God's plan. Think about this. From a Reformed perspective, when someone is raped, it's by God's decree. When someone is murdered, it couldn't have been any other way. When Hitler perpetrated the Holocaust, he was actually carrying out God's foreordained plan, and Hitler couldn't have done anything else because the Holocaust was God's will. So, from this point of view, the dark state that our world is in is exactly what God willed it to be, and it's going precisely according to his plan. So we dealt with a key question. Here it is. If God is all-powerful, how could sin have entered history without him willing it? Good question. This apparent conundrum is resolved by understanding two things. First, there's a vast difference between what God causes and what God allows. And second, while God does not cause sin and rebellion, he can use sin and rebellion for his purposes. And that creates intrigue that entire books have been written about. It leads to an obvious question. Here it is. Write your blanks in. An obvious question. How can God use evil without causing evil? To further deepen our biblical understanding on this issue, I'd like to deal in more detail with two key concepts tonight. Here's key concept number one. Here's your blanks. I'll read it twice because there's uh, four blanks. Although God allows people to disobey him and choose their own way, in his sovereignty, he frustrates their plans and nullifies their counsel and still brings about his purposes. So let's read that together now. Although God allows people to disobey him and choose their own way, in his sovereignty, he frustrates their plans and nullifies their counsel and still brings about his purposes. We see this <coughs> in Romans chapter 8. Look at this. <clears throat> the text is in your notes there. For the creation was subjected to futility. This is a great concept. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption, into freedom, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so this passage gives us an understanding of how God has designed universal moral reality. There is, we saw plenty of this as we dealt with the issues like relativism, pantheism, natural selection, the, uh, the whole concept that e evil and uh, good don't actually really exist. It's, it's an illusion or it's made up. Uh, or it's, it's biologically the best way to survive. Uh, that's what the, the natural selection, uh, natural, uh, the, the philosophy of, of natural selection uh, gives. Um, and um, notice here it is. Um, God has subjected all of creation to a futility when we go our own way. Notice that. God has subjected all of creation to a futility when we go our own way. And we're only set free from this when we turn to his ways. It's a universal moral reality. There's no way around it. There's no way to get outside of God's will. It's absolutely impossible. It's constrained. It's futile, as hard as we try. So look at this concept beautifully from Psalm 33. Let 
let the, uh, all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Notice his sovereignty. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord, notice, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. Nations say, we're going this way. God nullifies that. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. This is my idea. I'm going this way. It doesn't matter what God says. No, he frustrates that. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart, following the concept, stand from generation to generation. Notice the entire scope of all eternity. God is absolutely sovereign over every single moment, event, time, location. So God is awesome in his power, speaking hundreds of millions of galaxies into existence. And by his power, he nullifies the counsel of nations and he frustrates people's plans. So let me ask you a question, a personal question. Do you have any plans that are outside of God's will for you and not in alignment with his word? Again, don't just be here for theology. Tonight, in your life, anything not in alignment with God's word and his will? And if you do, look what the word tells us. Because of God's patience and long-suffering, he's allowed you to exercise your freedom of choice. And because of this, it may look like you're going to get your own way and succeed in finding fulfillment and joy following your plan and rejecting his plan. It may look like that. You have enough freedom to go down that road as God allows it. But don't be deceived. Ultimately, any plans that oppose his will and his word will, listen, they will be nullified. Your plans will crash at your feet. They will fail. They'll be frustrated. They will be nullified. That's how God has designed universal moral reality, and there is no getting around it. One of the greatest illustrations of this is found in the life of King Solomon. Few people in history have had so much, right? He had, he had in fact, everything that you could have at that time. But because his heart wandered away from, the loving, from loving God supremely, even though he had everything he wanted, and he had almost unlimited wisdom from God. He was absolutely miserable. Look at this from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And by the way, if you've ever been confused where you get statements in Ecclesiastes, because you, if you're thinking, okay, the, every statement in the Bible is true, uh, obviously that's not true because the Bible tells stories where people are lying and not telling the truth. But in this sense, the, why is Ecclesiastes saying you know, um, futility, futility, all is futility. That, that isn't true, true because of God. <coughs> no, this isn't speaking the truth of God. This is a man who had known God, who then rejected God, who is now saying in that rejection, no matter what, all ends up futile. So notice he says, Solomon saying, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. Think of it. It's like schizophrenic. He's talking to himself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter. It is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Notice he's explaining he has, he has it all. 
Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and treasure of kings. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasure of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Thus, I considered all of my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was no prophet under the sun. Ready? So I hated life. Is this not an unbelievable expose of today's pleasure-seeking, luxury-seeking, incredibly wealthy, most wealthy uh, culture in the history of the world? I have everything and I hated life. For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. So notice, God is the creator of all good things. Every pleasure, every joy, every delicious taste, everything that can make humans happy, all was created by God. But there's something he must do to make sure that we don't turn all of these good things into false gods that ruin us and place us in bondage. He loves us so much that he's intent upon us not destroying ourselves by turning good things into ultimate things. Think about that. When we turn good things into ultimate things, like Solomon did, it destroys the entire moral fabric. We no longer can think correctly. We no longer see that God's ways are great and there's great purpose in life. And of course, all isn't futile because God's going to bring about great purposes. But when you leave that behind, no matter how much you have, no matter what you get in life, no matter what you pursue and get, it always ends up with futility. So notice, it's a key concept. Write it in. God has woven a futility into the fabric of, the, of existence. That's an important concept that's coming out of these texts. And this is just a few of many texts that we could cover. God has woven, woven a futility into the fabric of existence that ensures that. It ensures that when we go our way, we will always, absolutely, inevitably end up with misery and meaninglessness, futility. Vanity, 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 all is, all is vain. So let me say that again. God has woven a futility into the fabric of the existence that ensures that when we go our way, we will always absolutely inevitably end up with misery and meaninglessness. So think about this. For our good, since we've all gone astray, God has had to allow humanity to bring pain and evil and suffering into the world. And he allows these things to bring about despair and hopelessness. Why? So that when we try to find our hope in the things of this world, as good as they are, as amazing as his creation is, we'll finally come back around and seek God and his ways. And when this happens, the evil and the suffering have the good effect of returning us to the joys that come when we delight in God alone. Notice what a horrible father he would be if we could find something as lowly as the things of this world to find ultimate pleasure and hope and uh, satisfaction in so that we could jettison, abandon the thing that we were truly made for. He would be an evil God if he did not use the evil that is, we have brought into the world to draw us back to real reality 
and hope and fulfillment. And this brings about freedom when we do this. We become whole the very way that he created us to be. And this leads us to key concept number two. Here's your blanks. God can use the evil choices of people and nations for his good purposes. Isn't that amazing? God can use the evil choices of people and nations for his good purposes. During the time of the prophet Jeremiah, Judah had come to the end of the reign of their kings. The nation had fallen back into idolatry so many times that in the last chapter of uh, 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 36, chapter 36, God actually states that there was no remedy for the nation. No remedy. God had no remedy for them. And because of this, Jeremiah prophesied that God was going to use Babylon to discipline them. So turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. Uh, to find Jeremiah, if you go to the middle of your Bible, you'll find the Psalms, turn to the right, and after about uh, three books or so, you get to Isaiah, and then Jeremiah is the second of the major prophets, right after Isaiah. Uh, it's a long book, so between Isaiah and Jeremiah, it's really easy to find Jeremiah. Um, and notice with me, chapter 25, verse, uh, verse 3. For, for, uh, from the, thir 30, excuse me, the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, by the way, who was a great king, King of Judah, even to this day, these 23 years that the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, you'll see that over and over, but you have not listened, and the Lord has sent you to all his servants, the prophets again and again, but you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, turn now everyone from his evil way, and from the evil of your deeds, and dwell on the land which the Lord has given you and your forefathers forever and ever. And do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. And I will do you no harm. Yet you have listened, not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Notice how it's always us who is, is uh, being harmed by this, not God. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all of the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to you Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them, isn't that amazing, my servant, and will bring them against the land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The millstones, of course, meaning that they have crops and food and plenty and the light of the lamp. And, uh, and so notice, um, uh, I want to make um, incredible points from the, basically you get to the end of that and you say, whoa, that is a tough passage. It sure sounds like God caused all of the destruction and calamity that came upon the Jewish nation. But if we look closely, we find some important biblical points in this portion of scripture. Point number one, here's your blank. If Judah had not disobeyed God, if Judah had not disobeyed God, the calamity wouldn't have happened. Point number two, calamity wasn't God's will. You ready for this? It wasn't God's will. It was God's response to Judah, uh, to Judah rejecting his will. 
God's will was that they would never be even have needed punishment for in, in the first place. And it was uh, also, this was God's will for Nebuchadnezzar, that he would never have chosen evil either. His perfect will is always that people would never go the wayward route, that they would be spared the pain of his staff and his rod. If Judah had obeyed, God would have protected them from Babylon rather than allowing Babylon to carry out its destructive plan. Point number three, let's look at verse 11. And this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. Isn't that interesting? We're going to unpack this because it says a lot about is God, is God causing evil? What's the situation here? The king of Babylon and the nation, he declares the Lord for their iniquity. And the land of the Chaldeans, it's just an ancient term for, for Babylon. And I will make it an, it an everlasting desolation. And I will bring upon the land all my words, which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves of them, even them. I will recompense them according to their deeds and according to the work of their hands. Notice what we find in this text. It's point number three. Write it in. God didn't destroy Judah. Nebuchadnezzar's evil destroyed Judah. Point number four. God allowed and used Nebuchadnezzar's evil. God allowed and used Nebuchadnezzar's evil, but Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for his evil. Really important point. God didn't want him to do the evil. He didn't want him to do what he was doing. But if he was going to make that choice and demand to go his own way instead of God's, then God was going to use whatever Nebuchadnezzar did. Point number five, here's your blank. God has com was completely just when he punished Babylon because they chose to destroy Judah out of their own evil intent. Think about that. God was completely just when he punished Babylon because they chose to destroy Judah out of their own evil intent. Now here's where a lot of people get tripped up understanding this text because it looks like God's bringing calamity on Judah, causing evil on Judah, and then it's like he's making his servant Nebuchadnezzar do evil to get to, to Judah, but then at the end of that, he's going to make Babylon pay for doing what he used against Judah. Seems some people get uh, start getting confused at this point, but uh, look with me back at verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them uh, against this land and against its inhabitants, in other words, Babylon against Judah, and against all the nations round about, and I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. So let's unpack a series of key concepts from this passage that describe the role that God played among the two evil nations. Because notice there were two evil nations. One, where God had sent them prophets and truth again and again and again. And they had hardened their hearts and always fallen back into idolatry to the point where there was no remedy. It's not like you could send another prophet better than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It just wasn't going to happen. So uh, notice what's happening here. So you have Judah that's evil and Babylon that's evil. Key concept number one, when God, here's your blanks, when God called Nebuchadnezzar his servant, 
He didn't mean that he was causing his evil. Key concept number two. Nebuchadnezzar did evil by his own choice. But even in this, as God's servant, God would still use him for his purposes. Isn't his sovereignty amazing? Let me say that again. Nebuchadnezzar did by his own, evil by his own choice, but even in this, as God's servant, God could still use him for his purposes. Key concept number three, here's your blank. God was in control. God was in control whether Nebuchadnezzar chose to do good or evil. Remember that universal spiritual reality? We have the freedom to choose right and wrong. But whether we choose right or wrong, God never surrenders his sovereignty. So there it is. God was in control whether Nebuchadnezzar chose to do good or evil. Key concept number four. While God was ultimately in control, he was completely justified in holding Nebuchadnezzar accountable. Think about that again. While God was ultimately in control, he was completely justified in holding Nebuchadnezzar accountable because he made these decisions freely. He made them freely himself and against God's will. So notice, God never surrenders his sovereignty, but he allows the possibility for choosing evil. And since that choice was freely Nebuchadnezzar's own, then Nebuchadnezzar was accountable Nebuchadnezzar was the cause of his evil, not God or his will. Key concept number five, here's your blanks. If Nebuchadnezzar had chosen righteousness and truth, God would have blessed him and used him to do many great things. Imagine if that incredibly gifted leader, Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Western world, imagine if he had just surrendered his will to God. God would have done great things through him. And key concept number six, here's your blanks, regardless of what Nebuchadnezzar did, God still would have disciplined Judah for their idolatry. Got it? Here we are in history. God uses Babylon because Babylon wants to go destroy nations and he's going to go destroy. So that evil, brutal destruction of Judah was, was um, Babylon's fault and Nebuchadnezzar's fault. But notice, God would still have disciplined Judah for their idolatry, regardless of what Nebuchadnezzar did. So here's the rest of your blanks. And thus, in no way did God need or predestine Nebuchadnezzar to choose evil. Think about that. Oh, God would have disciplined his people Judah because he loves whom he disciplines, he loves. God would have used someone, but he didn't need Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar to do evil or do the wrong thing so that he could accomplish his discipline of Judah. He would have had any number of ways that he would have been able to carry out that in his sovereignty. And in this series of concepts, it leads us to a pervasive biblical precept. Ready? Lots of blanks here, but I hope this will help you unpack this, this complicated issue tonight. A pervasive biblical precept, God wasn't constrained by human choices. God wasn't constrained by human choices, and he would have dealt with Judah no matter what Babylon did. And now we're ready to see the Arminian understanding of God's absolute sovereignty. It's untrue. It's a false straw man by the Reformed theologians to say Arminians don't believe in God's absolute sovereignty. That is not correct at all. The Arminian understanding of God's absolute sovereignty, here's your blanks, God is so sovereign 
that he is able to bring about his perfect will, even though he has granted humans the freedom to refuse his will. Now, look at what you just wrote down and let this sink in. This is God's absolute sovereignty. God is so sovereign that he is able to bring about his perfect will, even though he has granted humans the freedom to refuse his will. And let me give another example of this. God was the one who presented the cup of the crucifixion to Jesus, God the Father. It was the will of the Father that led Jesus to his death. If Judas had done the right thing, and he could have, if Judas had done the right thing, Christ still would have been crucified because Jesus still had to die for the sins of the world whether Judas betrayed him or not. If Pilate had done the right thing and had not made him be crucified at that point by his decree, if Pilate had done the, the right thing, Christ still would have been crucified because God is absolutely sovereign. And so Jesus was going to die for the sins of the world no matter what any human did. God didn't need Judas or Pilate or anyone else to ensure that his salvation plan would be accomplished. So God used the freely chosen evil decisions of humans for his perfect purposes. Isn't this an amazing futility that God has done to Satan, the enemy? Notice, at his greatest moment of triumph, Satan was actually using his evil intent to bring about the greatest of all events, so that everyone had a chance to be saved. If Jesus had not died, Satan would have gotten everyone. It's an amazing futility. The most evil power doing the most evil thing actually saves the world. Now that is sovereignty. So this leads us to a basic, a classic biblical precept. Here's your blank. God in his omnipotence. God in his omnipotence has an infinite number of ways to establish his will. Isn't that remarkable? He isn't constrained by whether Nebuchadnezzar chooses good or evil. God desired for Nebuchadnezzar and Judas and Pilate to choose good, just as he desires for everyone who has ever lived to choose good. But regardless of what any human ever chooses, God's purposes will be established. So let's do our application. Here's your blanks. I'll read it twice. Even when the wicked intend to harm God's people, amazingly, God can use the, even their evil intent to change their hearts through his faithful followers. Listen to that again. Even when the wicked intend to harm God's people, amazingly, God can use even their evil intent to change their hearts through his faithful followers. So we've been looking at the Babylonian exile. Think about what was going on in this part of Israel's history. The Jews had rejected the word of the prophets so many times that God said, literally, there's no remedy for you. And Babylon was an evil empire completely abandoned to their maniacal effort to rule the world through brutal power. In a spiritual sense, among these two hopelessly evil nations, this situation seemed completely without any hope whatsoever. Every player in this drama seemed intent on having their own way and on pursuing wickedness. So both the religious 
and the heathen were rejecting God's ways. But this is one of the amazing things about God's sovereignty and his ability to save people who seem completely beyond saving. So I'd like us to focus on King Nebuchadnezzar for our application. Think with me about how evil Nebuchadnezzar was. He led an empire that was utterly ruthless. They were brutal. They enslaved entire people groups. They savagely tortured their enemies. All they cared about was power and conquest. And here was their king, Nebuchadnezzar, who had demolished the Jews and Jerusalem and even had destroyed God's temple. And now back in Babylon, after the siege and the conquest of Judah, he had a bizarre dream, <laughs> a dream about a gigantic multi-metallic image. And then he had had the uh, image built into a 90-foot statue and was now forcing everyone in Babylon to bow down and worship. One would think that the situation had become utterly without hope in every way, that God had lost all ability to reach this pagan monarch. Could you be any more unsavable than Nebuchadnezzar? But now enter the faithfulness of three followers of God. As we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 3, turn with me to Daniel. You're in Jeremiah. Just go to Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel's the last of the major prophets. If you get to Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, you've gotten into the minor prophets. So Daniel chapter 3 with me. Um, and we're picking up the story as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have, have refused Nebuchadnezzar's command to bow down. Uh, and so here's the famous passage. Let's pick up at verse 13, a new paragraph there. This is such a beautiful and compelling story. I'm going to read quite a bit of it, so read with me. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigone, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God, <laughs> stupid question, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Big tough guy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, amazing, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Next paragraph. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it usually was heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up with their trousers, their coats and their caps and their other clothes, and these cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, 
the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men that we cast into the midst of the fire? Guess who shows up? They answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king. He answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. He's polytheistic, so he's thinking plural, but he's right. It's the pre-incarnate Jesus, God the Son. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. You servants of the Most High God, is that stunning? The Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the high, king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that when the Lord delivers, look at his perfect deliverance, that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of the fire even come upon them. What an incredible deliverance of God's people. But now let's look at the remarkable response of this hopelessly, utterly lost evil king whose command has been violated. Look at the last paragraph, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, isn't this amazing? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants and put their trust in him, violating the king's command. He's congratulating them for following God rather than him. Look at that. Violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there, you ready, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. What an astounding event. The reason that these three Hebrews were in Babylon was because of the recurrent, relentless evil and idolatry of the Jewish people. These young kids had been hosed. They were there because of an evil nation and evil parents and evil decisions and cyclical idolatry, hopelessly lost in their godlessness. The reason they were in the fiery furnace, though, was because the evil and idolatry of a pagan king. So they're completely surrounded lose-lose. All of their ancestors, uh, the, excuse me, the, the, except for the remnant, all of their ancestors have utterly led them to this hopeless situation. And then this most powerful man and this unbelievably evil pagan king has now set them up. So how in the world could God ever reach this totally depraved generation of Jews and Babylonians? And the answer is one more powerful expression of how God has always saved his world. He looks for people who will be faithful. 
despite the evil, despite the darkness, despite their suffering, despite what could have seemed to be uh, to the three Hebrews like a situation where they had been completely abandoned by God. But instead, their trust in him was so absolute that even if God didn't deliver them, they weren't going to falter in their faith. Listen, American church, no matter what, they were going to be faithful. And the outcome of this faithfulness was utterly astonishing. God used them to help take a hard-hearted, self-absorbed, power-hungry tyrant and change him so completely that he was announcing God's sovereignty to the whole world and bringing glory to, you ready? The most high God. And so tonight, we've seen that God is not the cause of evil, but in his sovereignty, He can take the evil intent of rebellious humans and use even their sin to bring about his great purposes. In this instance, Nebuchadnezzar's murderous intent, his plan to execute anyone who went against his decree, this issue, this decree was turned into a miraculous deliverance that led him to announce his allegiance to the mighty one of Israel. So as we close, let me ask you some questions. Along with the three Hebrew children, is your trust in God so firm that you'll allow even the evil things that are done against you to be the occasion for God to bring about the salvation of the ones, maybe even the ones who are causing you the suffering? It's not God's evil. It's their evil, and it's truly evil. And if they do not repent and turn, they will pay for that evil. But in faith, Can you see past the pain, the hardship, the treachery, and the evil, and stand boldly with the firm declaration that the God whom you serve will deliver you, but that you trust him so completely that even if he does not, you'll never serve or worship the things of this world? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that just like the people of Judah, you love us enough to discipline us. And thank you that just like the exile of your people into Babylon, you allow pain into our lives to awaken us to our peril when we're following our own self-destructive plan. And thank you, Lord, for crafting the universe in such a way that it's futile for us to get around your plan. And thank you that you're faithful to never let us go down our own way without sending us reminders of who you are and reminders that we'll never get around your purposes. Thank you that even your judgment and your punishment and your discipline are for the purpose not to harm us, but to deliver us. And thank you that even though you're perfectly holy, You're still able to use the evil of this world to bring about good for those who live according to your purpose. For Lord, your word doesn't say that all things are good. Many things as we've seen tonight, many things are evil, horrible, unthinkable. But what your word does say is for those 
who are called according to your purpose, you will bring all things together for good. The evil and the good, you'll bring them all together for good. And Lord, we confess that we've often needed a wake-up call. I suspect lots of us tonight need a wake-up call. So I pray that this evening, if any who are watching or walking outside of your ways, that you'll give the wake-up call that they need. Lord, do whatever you have to to save us from ourselves and give us such a deep trust in you that we'll stand strong even when others bring evil against us so that you can use us to help save those around us. Even, Lord, when they are so evil and so intent upon taking us down, may your incredible love bring us to lay our lives down just like you did. We love you, Lord. Amen. Next week, can the evil done against us actually be for our good? Let me ask that again. Can the evil done against us actually be for our good? See you next week.